we can't live with hidden sin. If we have hidden sin, we're basically opening up areas of our life where the enemy can come in and wreak havoc. Because the enemy uses shame and fear to keep us from confessing our sins with brothers so that he can keep a stronghold over us. And I'm telling you, there's nobody in this room that is so righteous that they're going to hear something and blush that you have in your deep, dark past. Okay? We've got, yeah, we could make sailors blush probably with the stories in this room. So let's not be afraid of the things that God wants to bring out when we bring Him forward through confession and repentance. We need to live in the light because God is light. And that is His way. He wants us to be living in the light. That's where the enemy doesn't have power and control over us. So please, listen to that teaching. And I'm going to ask somebody to do me a favor and grab me a glass of water, if you would. If someone can grab a glass and and just get me a glass of water, that would be awesome. God is, is showing us that there are fundamentally four areas that we need to focus on if we want to experience intimacy with Him. One is spending time with Him. And we're going to be talking about the ways that we can spend time with God. But we know from any relationship that unless we're spending time with someone, we can't get to know them. So if all you're doing is spending time with God once a week, that's not going to cut it. That's not the kind of relationship He's looking for. The Bible talks about our relationship with God like a covenant, like a marriage covenant. In fact, marriage is the closest relationship that we know of in natural terms that reflects what God wants out of our relationship. And for a healthy marriage, there may be marriages where they don't talk more than once a week. That's not the model. The marriage that God wants modeled is a marriage where there's real intimacy between a man and a wife, where there's real dialogue, where they know... You know, husbands and wives that have been married 30 and 40 years that have healthy marriages, um, they, they start to know each other even without them having to speak. You know, they just kind of know when something's going on with their spouse. That's how God wants our relationship. He wants our relationship with Him to develop to that place where we just kind of know what's, going, what's on God's heart. We have such a sensitivity to Him that we just know what's on His heart. That when we see someone who's hurting, we can just feel it. And we just go to them and can minister the love of God. He wants that kind of relationship. And the only way that that happens is we've got to be deliberate about it. Anybody who's been married more than a minute knows that you have to be deliberate about intimacy. And you have to be deliberate. In fact, I was walking out of the house today and I said to my wife, I just felt in my spirit as I was walking out of the house, it was like the 50th time I've walked out of the house and my wife's seen me maybe like two hours awake in the last week. And I just felt in my spirit, you know, I need to spend time with my wife. And I just said, honey, would you schedule a date for us to be together? Because I need to spend time with you. And she said, she stopped like this. She's like, yeah, I will. And so it's those little, it's those, it's that radar, that sensitivity to God's spirit where God wants us to be in a place where we start to... If we don't spend time with God, that little alarm clock goes off in our heart and we're like, I need to spend time with the Lord. And that's what I see and that's what I hear from believers who are walking in a place of maturity. They start to know when they're not spending enough time with God. You start to know, okay, I'm getting fleshy, I need to spend time with God. You know, I'm feeling like my old self, I'm feeling like the carnal man, I need to spend time with God. 
Anybody experience that? Okay. And so God wants us to be in that kind of place of sensitivity where we know, hey, I need to spend time with the Lord. So spending time with God is something we're going to spend a lot of time talking about and doing, hopefully for the next weeks and months and for the rest of our lives. Actually spending time with God. And what does that look like and how do you do that? There's three other things that we need to focus on too. One is declaring war on sin. Declaring war on worldliness. We understand that if we're friends with this world, and most of our time and attention is focused on this world, which we know from Scripture is going to pass away, then we're actually an enemy of God. That God, once He's revealed Himself to us, He wants us to be in a place where He wants us to be in a place where we are in the world, but not of the world. Okay, we're still here. We're not going to fall in the ditch of people who go out and form a community and they just like they they don't want any part of the world, and so they're going to just be this little insular. Oh, we're Jesus people out here in the middle of nowhere, you know. So we have no problems, and we and we avoid the world. That's not what we're talking about. We we want to avoid that ditch, and what we want to do is we want to be filled with God's Spirit and God's presence but still be out in the world so that we can be salt. How many remember that scripture, that we are the salt of the earth? Okay, We are intentionally in our neighborhoods, in, our, in the marketplace, in our workplace, in our families, because we represent the kingdom of God in those places. We are literally Jesus' hands and feet in those places. And you remember what he says, if salt loses its flavor, do you know what that means? He says, if salt loses its flavor, it becomes worthless, you throw it, up, throw it away. Part of the reason why God saved us has nothing to do with us. It has to do with the people around us that don't know God. So we want to be salty. So we have to declare war on worldliness, and we'll talk about what that means. What does worldliness mean? Finally, we have to declare war on the enemy. Satan's real. <laughs> Satan is real. And if you've walked with God for more than a month or two, you you know that. But after a while, if you haven't, if you don't have a revelation that he's real, I pray that he'll give you one very quickly. Because the most dangerous thing we can do is be civilians on the battlefield. We talked about that. That actually in, in wars throughout time, there's more civilian casualties than there are militant combatant casualties in conflict. So if you're going to act like a civilian, the chances of you being taken out are much higher than if you're actually being trained and operating as a soldier, which is what God wants to do with us in this room. He wants us to be equipped soldiers so that we can be useful to Him in combat. But that is what's going on. Um, This war on sin, um, we're going to come back to that because I'm just going to do a real brief overview of where we were last week. Last week we began to understand that... um, God is holy. Do you remember that? We were in passages from uh, Revelation 4.8, and night after night, day after day, in, front, in the throne room of God, the angels are saying, holy, holy, holy. So we, in order to be intimate with the Lord, we need to be in a place of holiness as well. To be in His presence, we have to be holy. And the Scriptures tell us that we need to be holy because God is holy. Now, we also learned that that is impossible humanly speaking. But what we need to do in order to experience real holiness 
is we need to submit to this process called consecration, sanctification, excuse me. The process by which, and we talked about that, that as we take steps closer to God and we get closer to Him in His throne room in heaven, that He's the light of His presence and His holiness is going to begin to show us things that we didn't see before. The things that we did last week might not be okay this week. The things that we did last year might not be okay this year. Why? Because as we get closer to God, He's going to show us stuff that's been buried and deep and more hidden in our lives. As we get closer to Him, He's going to show us those things. Now, then we have a choice to make. Are we going to say, God, I see what You're showing me. I agree with You. That's what repentance is. It's saying, I agree with You, God, and what You're showing me. I'm going to turn to You. Help me fix this thing. That's all He's asking us to do. All we have to do is, one, say yes to God. Say, yes, I'll let you do what you want to do in me. And two, say, invite him in to do it. That's how it works. We talked a little bit last week, brothers, about why this language about declaring war on sin. Why do we need to declare war on sin? Why this posture of war? And we said, it's because we were born into a war. This war started long before we got here. And so we don't get to decide whether we're in a war or not. All we have to decide is, are we going to be active participants in it, or are we going to be civilians? And we talked about how this war began in heaven, and Satan was thrown to the earth, and now Satan is still on the earth, and he's still waging war, but he can't wage war against God, so he wages war against God's people, and he tries to take out his wrath against God's people. The other thing that we talked about is something happens when every single one of us makes the decision that while we're really in a war, something changes in our hearts. When you realize that you're in a war, for example, I talked about last week, when I was in training in the National Guard, you know, we went through all the motions of preparing for battle. We learned how to fire our howitzers. Howitzers, for those of you who don't know, are these huge cannons that shoot, you know, 155-pound projectiles miles away and they explode and shrapnel goes everywhere. I mean, it's a powerful weapon system. We would train to do that. And what was the ultimate purpose of that training? To learn how to win a battle, to destroy enemy soldiers, to take ground. Now, we trained for that night and day. But I'll tell you something. The whole atmosphere of the training changed when the Gulf War was declared. When the Gulf War, when we found out that we could actually be deployed in a foreign, as National Guardsmen in a, on foreign soil, all of a sudden we got real serious about what we were doing. We went from this casual sort of going through the motions thing to a, wow, me learning how to do this thing, me stepping in and, and learning how to use this weapon system could have a direct impact on whether I live or die. It could have a direct impact on whether my brothers, my fellow soldiers, live or die. And the sobriety that came on us during those seasons when we were in combat was noticeable. Can you imagine that? Can you picture that? How that training atmosphere would change when all of a sudden you're getting ready to actually go into a combat zone? And all of a sudden it's going from hypothetically needing to like face an enemy soldier to, hey, we're going. And that's the shift that God wants to make in us. Because for the most part in the Western church, we've been in a peacetime, workday casual, well, yeah, we're in a war, but 
What's the hurry? Kind of atmosphere, haven't we? Isn't that kind of generally the culture of the church? Particularly here in the West? Now I'll tell you something, in China, in the Chinese underground church, that's not the pervasive attitude. When they give their lives to Jesus, they understand that it's life or death. They understand that what they're doing is they're giving up their life for God. And they do it because, guess what? They know that God's real. If they didn't know that God was real, that would be foolishness to to put your life on the line for something that wasn't real. So the first issue that we need to settle is, is this real? And that's why we talk about that over and over in this fellowship. You don't experience the reality of God and the kingdom of God unless you step into it. Unless you obey God. And so if you haven't settled that question, that's the first one to settle. Is God real? Hopefully you've answered that, most of you, because you're here. That one's answered and settled. Now the question is, are you ready to move forward with the next step? Which is, wow, we're in a combat zone and we need to get real about being in a combat zone. Most of us are taking bullets already. Most of the trials and the suffering that we're going through is already a result of enemy activity. If you're in this group, there's a strong likelihood that there's some interference with you being here. There's some interference with some of the other parts of your life. Maybe you're struggling in the workplace. Why? Because the enemy is putting pressure on you. The more and more you step into the things of God, the hotter it's going to get. That's just the way it is. That's the wake-up call. Brothers, we're in combat. But I want to caution you, because there's some thinking out there that might say, well, then I should just kind of be a couch Christian. Well, the problem with that is that then you become a civilian. And as a civilian, you're not, your odds of surviving don't go up, they go down. But if you get intentional and you say, God, I realize this is a war, help train me to be the soldier that I'm being called to be, and send me into the war zone, that's actually where you've got the best survivability. Is to be trained and equipped and then sent into combat because that's where God wants all of us. As men, guess what? You have been called, every one of you, if you haven't received the call yet, receive it now. You've been called to be warriors in the kingdom of God. You have called to be warriors. Not guys who sit on the couch and watch desperate housewives for the rest of your life. That's not what God's called you to do. So, realizing that we're in war can change our heart posture if we let it. We can move from half-heartedness to wholeheartedness. And God has been speaking to us about not being half-hearted about this. The Gospel, God has put this on my heart over and over again. The Gospel of Jesus Christ is as follows. This is the abbreviated version, but this is the heart of it. Jesus came to show us who God was. And what his heart is for us. That he loves us. And he gave up his life. So that we could see that and realize that giving our lives up for God. That God is worth giving up our lives for. He's saying, listen, what you can't see what I'm giving up my life for. But Jesus, the, the word says that he, he laid down his life for the glory that was set before him. He knew what was coming. He had vision to see what was coming, and so he, he entered in 
to that sacrifice because of what was before him. He could see in the Spirit what was coming. And that's what we need to be able to see. We need to say, hey, we need to set our lives down. We need to make that decision. Christianity is an all or nothing thing. I mean, the real Christianity. The real version. There's lots of versions of the gospel out there, but the one that results in salvation is the one where you say, God, I'm yours, and you're His from that point on. You are not your own. You have no rights to yourself. You're not in charge of decision-making. I'm just telling you, if you've given your life to Christ and really given it to Him, then you should be done making decisions, and it should be Christ who's making decisions. And we should be seeking God in every detail of our lives like the Scriptures tells us. But our heart posture should be one of recognizing that that's what the Gospel is. And when you learn who God is, you want to do that. When you, when you actually have a revelation about how good God is, you want to do that. It's not something that's, oh no man, not God. No, it's the opposite. It's the opposite. It's like, oh, God, if you realized who God is and what His plans are for you, you would drop everything you are doing that it doesn't have to do with getting closer to God and you would run at the highest possible speed you could into the center of Him. If you knew who He was, that's what you would do. So the only problem that we have is we lack a revelation of who God is. All the things that we want to hold on to and all the comforts and all the controls we want to hold on to are actually holding us back from fully entering in to the glory of God. So God was starting to speak to us about this idea of being wholehearted, being totally in it. And maybe you're there and maybe you're somewhere else or you're somewhere in between from half-hearted to whole-hearted. Maybe you're somewhere in between. But I'm going to tell you, brothers, what we need to do is we need to pray that God will create in us wholeheartedness. We looked at a picture last week of God showing us what the consequences of half-heartedness are. And we looked at the, the, the story of the Israelites coming out of the Promised Land for the first time. And how the scouts went into the Promised Land and how ten, ten of them went in, and, or twelve of them went in, and uh, ten of them came out and said, we can't do this. There's no way. These people are huge. They're giants. We can't, we can't tackle this. And two of them said, absolutely we can. God said we can. We can. And they were totally wholehearted. And God responded to that by keeping over a million... And the Israel's, Israelites believed the ten and not the two. He kept over a million people out of the promised land. Out of the promised land, which is the Old Testament version of the kingdom of heaven. That's a picture of the new covenant and the promised land for us, brothers, is the kingdom of heaven. He's willing to keep millions of people out and just let the ones in that are wholehearted... It doesn't have to be pretty, but if you're wholehearted, that's, he'll take wholehearted over super performance guy over here who's holding back part of his heart. You guys remember the rich young ruler? The rich young ruler, he's like, I did this and this and this and this, Jesus. Huh? What do you think of that? He says, oh yeah? Sell everything you own and follow me. And he just put his finger right on the part of his heart that was not willing to let go. 
And he went away. He couldn't handle it. And what God wants to do over this weekend is He wants to put His finger on parts of our hearts that are not wholly invested in the Gospel and the Kingdom. We ended last week with this question, how do we get wholehearted? How do we get wholehearted? Should I get super emotional and work myself up into a lather? Oh God! Oh God! Make me wholehearted! I'm wholehearted. I'm passionate about God. Is that something that we can manufacture and market? It's going to come from God. So how do we get it? Yeah, we ask for it. We ask for it. It says here, and so I tell you, these are Jesus' words, keep on asking and you'll receive what you ask for. Keep on seeking and you'll find. Keep on knocking and the door will be open to you. Now, <laughs> if we all say a prayer right now, are we all going to get wholeheartedness? How many believe that you could pray that prayer earnestly and say, God, give me wholeheartedness, whatever the cost. And you could really mean it. But you may even need to ask for as a desire to ask for wholeheartedness. You may even need to go back a step and say, God, would you, just, would you give me a, a desire to be wholeheartedly after you? Because I'm going to be honest with you, I didn't start out with that. I, I've had to ask him many, many times, God, would you make me wholehearted for you? So what are the, my question is, what are those things in our life that keep us held back from even asking for wholeheartedness? Fear of what He might ask you to do? Absolutely. How about our flesh? For those that don't understand what we're talking about, we are all made of flesh. We are carnal. Our natural desire is to sin. Our natural desire is to do what's least painful and most comfortable, right? If you guys, if you had the choice of walking on broken glass, James, or doing your homework, what would you pick between those two? Your flesh, yeah. You guys get the idea. Our flesh, our flesh is our carnal desire to do what is easiest and to avoid pain. We want to avoid things that are painful or uncomfortable. Our flesh causes us to continually make rationalizations and excuses for why we don't do the things of God. Our flesh is our carnal mind, and our flesh is continually making rationalizations and excuses about why we're not doing the things of God. We're never free from that battle. One of the main enemies of wholeheartedness is our flesh. And we just need to understand that. God is going to give us ways. Here, here He said in Mark chapter 14, you guys can go to Mark 14. Brothers, why sin is attractive, why we like sin. I'm going to tell you why we like sin. Sin is attractive because it brings temporary comfort and pleasure to our flesh. That's why we like it. It brings temporary comfort and pleasure. Emphasis on temporary. Comfort and pleasure to our flesh. That's what's so appealing about sin. Nobody does internet porn because they're thinking about the effect that it might have on their marriage or their children. They're thinking about the instant gratification that it will provide the first time. And they have no idea what they're stepping into in terms of the demonic bondage that they're stepping into. So it's there to provide that instant pleasure. The instant pleasure is the bait. 
to get us hooked so that the enemy can use that to build up a stronghold and before you know it, you're addicted to internet pornography. And your marriage is destroyed or in the case of a brother that we had here in this fellowship, you end up dead, committing suicide because of the shame. Then the enemy will come with shame. He'll lure you in with your flesh. He'll, he'll snap the trap down and then he'll heap shame upon you and in this case, it brought the brother to commit suicide. So this isn't a joke or a game or, or something like that. Satan's objective is not just to kind of, you know, inconvenience us. His goal, and he's very subtle, and he's been playing this game a long time. He knows us very well. His goal is to begin us off with little innocuous things that don't seem like they're that big a deal. That's how it starts. And as we begin to taste that stuff, then he'll put something else out there that's, that draws us a little bit deeper and deeper and deeper. And then, bam, we're in a stronghold. Now when we begin to try and move out of the things of God, he's got hooks in us that he can just pull and keep us from moving forward in the things of God. So this battle is very real. Listen here. Um, that is why God wants us to be free from sin. It's not because He doesn't want us to have pleasure, but what He's interested in is long-term joy, long-term eternal joy, eternal uh, uh, happiness and, and pleasure that comes from being in His presence, not temporary pleasure that, that's for our flesh. He's not interested in our flesh having pleasure. He's interested in our spirit and our soul that are eternal having joy. So there's the battle right there. So God is not coming into, like a lot of people think of, God's put us in the middle of a candy store down here and said, don't touch anything. You know, here you are in the middle of a candy store, there's candy bars, there's you know, gumdrops, there's all these things that you love to eat, don't touch anything. That's a wrong view of reality. The truth is, is that when God comes to us, we're in a cancer ward. God's coming to us in a cancer ward where these sins have overcome our bodies and our souls. And we're dying. And He's got the cure. Here we read in, uh, in Mark 14.38. This is Jesus speaking to the disciples right before He goes to the cross. He says this, Keep watch and pray so that you will not give in to temptation. For the spirit is willing, but the body is weak. The spirit is willing, but the body is weak. What does that mean? Our spirit wants to obey God. But our flesh, our carnal nature, is weak. And so his exhortation is, keep watching, pray. If you're praying and you're asking God for help, you will overcome your sin. You will overcome temptation. If you're not, you're going to give in to the flesh. If you do nothing, your flesh will control you. If you just do nothing and you just say, I'm just going to live my life and do whatever I want, your flesh will control your life. And that's why you see so many carnal Christians, because as we talked about last week, if you're not pressing in and getting closer to God, you're drifting into the gravitational pull of this world, and you're, give, and you're drifting into these strongholds of sin, and eventually you're consumed. And we've got, we've got the churches full of carnal Christians who still don't, haven't seen any of the transform, transformational power of Christ operating in their lives. So one of the things we need to learn how to do is how do we discipline our flesh to submit to the Spirit of God? 
Okay. And that's and one of the ways that we do that is fasting. That's one of the reasons that we have fasting. Fasting is to begin to train our flesh to submit to the Spirit of God. And we do that so that when God comes, you know, when God comes to you, the first time He comes to you, He's probably not going to say, sell your house or sell your IRA and, and give all the money to the poor. That's probably not going to be the first leading that He gives a brother. Right, Doc. He'll give him smaller leadings. He'll give him smaller things like, I want you to give 20 bucks in the offering plate tonight. Why? Because he's trying to train us on how to submit to the Spirit. So as we submit in those small things, then God will begin to bring bigger things. But we can't just jump right to the big things and say, oh God, I'm going to do all this for you if we can't get the small things right. Okay? That's part of the disciplining process. The other thing that is an enemy of wholeheartedness is doubt and unbelief. Doubt and unbelief. I can't tell you how many brothers that I know and have met that are constantly plagued by, did I hear from God or didn't I? I'm just not sure if I heard from God. I'm not sure if that's really what God's asking me to do. And they stay in that place of wondering whether they've heard from God or not so much that nothing ever happens. They never never take the chance of saying, you know what, God just told me to walk up to that person and to pray that He would give them a revelation of who Christ is. You know what, I'm just going to do it. And you just do it. And then all of a sudden you realize when all of a sudden the person bursts into tears and they receive Christ, wow, that was God. Now, can you end up in some cornfields every once in a while? (laughs) Like, well, I thought God told me to come out in the middle of this cornfield, but I have no idea what I'm... Yes, of course you can. But it's way better to be in a cornfield a few dozen times and then to be able to discern the voice of God and then from that point forward, you know when God's speaking to you then for you to never take the chance, never take the risk of of stepping out in obedience to God, you will never see the kingdom of God unless you are obedient to the Spirit. It just will not happen. That's why the Scriptures say you can't please God without faith. Some of you guys have been hearing from God and you're just not answering them. Or you're doing things like this. And and, and hey man, I'm... I've been there. I mean, you guys have heard me tell story after story after story of times where I felt like God was telling me to do something. The woman in the grocery store, where God told me to go up to the woman and say, God wants to reveal Himself to you. Can I pray that He'll do that? And I heard Him very clearly tell me that, and I didn't do it. I mean, so you guys, I'm not coming from a place of, you know, I've got it all figured out and you guys don't. What I'm saying is, you've got to obey in those situations if you ever want to see God's kingdom break out in your life. You have to obey. That's the only way. You have to just trust that God is so big that He can speak to you if you're messing up. You know, God has the ability to get a hold of us. Believe me, brothers. If we're going in the wrong direction, He will stop us. And there's some safeguards to that. But I want to go to the book of James just to hear how significant this problem is. James chapter 1. I think, I think this scripture is for a lot of us right now too in this economy that's going on, in this economy, in this depressed economy. 
Because I think there's a lot of us that don't understand how much we're really trusting in the world and trusting in you know, our ability to make an income to provide for ourselves rather than trusting God. I think a lot of us are in that place and a lot of us are going to get set free from that because God's going to remove any illusion that we're in control and that we're providing for ourselves. Hallelujah. It says here, starting in verse 5, brothers, if you need wisdom, ask our generous God and He will give it to you. He will not rebuke you for asking. But when you ask Him, be sure that your faith is in God alone. Do not waver. For a person with divided loyalty is as unsettled as a wave of the sea that is blown and tossed by the wind. Such people, listen to this, such people should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Their loyalty is divided between God and the world and they are unstable in everything they do. And I believe God is asking each one of us, where is your loyalty? Is it to me or is it to this world that is dying and going away? Where's your loyalty? What are you trusting in? Are you trusting in your 401k? Are you trusting in your job? Are you trusting in your ability to figure out how to pay your mortgage? Or are you trusting in me? Settle it. And once it's settled, then you're going to begin to hear from me clearly and you're going to hear my word and you're going to be able to obey me. But if you're coming to me and you're asking for answers and your loyalty is divided, don't expect to get anything because you're going to be tossed back and forth and you're going to be in the valley of indecision constantly in your life and you'll never be able to move forward. God expects us to take responsibility for believing what He says in His Word. We have a responsibility to believe what He says in His Word. When we do that, He'll release the grace that we need to obey Him and to follow Him. And I want to say this. If you guys go to Mark 9.49, you know, what God is... What God is doing with all of us is He's testing our hearts. Mark 9. Mark 9.49. God is testing our hearts continually. Why? Because He doesn't allow just anybody to come into His presence. He doesn't allow just anybody to go into the kingdom of heaven. The only people that He wants to be there on that day, I I believe this, are people who really want to be with Him. That's who God wants to be with. Isn't that who you want to be with? I mean, just, you know, from intuition, like here here we are, who are the people that you want in in your life? Are they people who don't really like to be around you? Or do you want to be with people who really, really, really want to be with you? Do you want to be married to a wife that doesn't love you? Anybody want to be married to a wife that doesn't love them? Anybody want to be married to a wife that would rather be with her friends than be with you? Nobody? It's the same way with the Lord. He doesn't want to spend eternity with souls that really didn't want to be with Him. And so He's constantly testing our hearts. Do you really want to be with me, Nick? Or did you just say it once upon a time when I revealed myself to you, you said it, but when it came to actually walking it out, you were nowhere to be found. When it came to actually making the decision between doing what your carnal flesh wanted to do and doing what my spirit was saying, you wanted to do what you wanted to do. You weren't making me Lord of your life. 
You're not making me Lord of your life. When you say, I want to follow you, Jesus, and every time a decision is posed to you where you have to decide whether you're going to do it Jesus' way or your own way, you do it your own way? That's not. You, you are showing by your actions that you don't want to be with God. That's why He's coming to test our hearts. And He says it here, Mark 9.49. Everyone will be tested with fire. He's testing all of us with fire, with trials with suffering. How will we respond when we face those things? Will we do things and will we cry out to God and do it His way or will we do it our own way? Isaiah 7.9 Unless your faith is firm, I cannot make you stand firm. Unless your faith is firm, I cannot make you stand firm. You know what, that, you know what the Ugin remix of that is? Unless you believe what I say, I can't do anything for you. If you don't believe what I say in my word, I cannot do anything for you. That without faith, I can do nothing for you. That's why Jesus said, without faith, we can't please the Father. Unless your faith is firm, unless you're willing to stand on what I say, I can't help you. Because it won't take anything. That's why God wants to root us so deeply in the word. So that we actually believe this. We don't just read about it and talk about it and say we believe it, but we actually believe it. Believing it to the point where it changes what we do. Where we do things differently because of what it says. And not just what's written here, but the things that create a deep conviction in our hearts. Where we know that God has spoken to us. Once He's spoken to us, He doesn't want us to be shaken off our position because somebody comes along and says... Well, what do you think about this idea? Do you understand he's going to send well-meaning people to you to give you counsel that's contrary to what he's already told you? Because he's going to ask you, do you believe me or do you believe men? And every single one of us will be tested in that way if we haven't already. I'm telling you, there have been many well-meaning Christians who have come up and said, I don't know if it's from God that you, you, know, you sell everything and follow him. Well-meaning Christians... And they've got scriptures to back it up. And I'll tell you what, unless I believe God, I'm going to tell you guys a quick story about this. Unless your faith is firm, I cannot make you stand firm. And I know that there are brothers in who have gone through marriage stuff, and they'll be able to relate to this. It was very early on in my marriage, and we were fighting all the time. And at one point, I remember my wife saying to me, you know, I'm not really attracted to you, and I'm not even sure if you're supposed to be my husband. I don't think you are. That's what she said to me. And I'll tell you what, something happened. The Spirit of God welled up in me. I know it wasn't me. The Spirit of the Lord welled up in me, and I said to her, this is what I said to her, said, I looked right at her and I said, you know what? I believe God. I don't care what you say. God told me that you're my wife, and I'm going to believe what God says. And the minute I said that, something broke on her. I mean, something broke in her. When I stood on the word that the Lord had given me, that she was my wife, something broke off her. She started weeping and said, Oh, I'm so sorry. I can't even believe I said that. And I just wept. I just sat there and wept. And the reason that I wept is I realized that God was teaching me a lesson. That I'm not supposed to base my decisions about what comes out of some person's mouth. That I'm supposed to base my decisions upon what the Spirit of the Lord has put into my heart. 
And when he puts it in my heart, I don't care. Hell itself cannot talk. Nobody, I don't care if the Pope comes and proclaims over me, Stephen, you are out to lunch. If I hold such a deep conviction that the Holy Spirit has told me something, nothing is going to shake me. I'm like a pit bull. I'm going to grab onto that Word of God and nobody's shaking me off. And when we're in that place, brothers, that's when God can release the kingdom. Mark 9. Mark 9.43. I want to read you this passage of Scripture. My question for you is, do you believe God or don't you? That's my question for you. That's the question of the Lord for you on this particular passage of Scripture. Do you believe what God says or don't you? Here's what it says. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Wow. It's better to enter eternal life with only one hand than to go into the unquenchable fires of hell with two hands. If your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better to enter eternal life with only one foot than to be thrown into hell with two feet. And if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. It's better to enter the kingdom of God with only one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell where the maggots never die and the fire never goes out. That's why he wants us to be wholehearted in declaring war on sin. Because He's trying to protect us. He loves us. So what does a personal war on sin look like? First of all, we have to understand that we are absolutely incapable of winning the war on sin by ourselves. How many understand that? Are we, are we there yet? Fabulous. It's the Holy Spirit that brings us into holiness. It's the Holy Spirit that brings us into holiness. What our job is, is to submit to the process wholeheartedly. All we're doing is we're saying, God, I'm submitting to the process. I'm willing to go through whatever you want to take me through so that you can do this stuff in me. David described the process in the book of Psalms. If we go to Psalm 139, the very end, here's what he says. 139, 23, and 24. He says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. Search me, O God. So you see him submitting to the process there. He's saying, Search me. God, you look in me. Why? Because we deceive ourselves. There's many things in us that we don't see. So we're asking God to look at us and say, God, what do you see? Point out anything in me that offends you. Anything inconsistent with you. And lead me along the path of everlasting life. So we understand from this that the path to everlasting life is going through this process. That that is exactly what this weekend is all about. It's submitting to this process of letting God search us. That's all we're doing this weekend, brothers. That's all we're doing this weekend. I want to talk a little bit about two terms that you guys have heard us talk about um, before. One is sanctification. What is sanctification? Sanctification is the lifelong process of submitting to the work of the Holy Spirit, revealing areas of sin, and giving us the opportunity to turn to God for healing and deliverance. It's a lifelong process of letting the Holy Spirit show us areas that need healing and deliverance and submitting to that process. This process removes all things in us that interfere with the free flow of the Holy Spirit in our lives 
and the manifestation of the fruit of the Holy Spirit. So as we go through this process, what we're really doing is we're allowing God to more fully manifest in our lives. That's what's happening. So we can experience being in God's presence all the time. Consecration is another term um, that you may have heard, and that's why we're calling this Operation Consecration. Consecration is the submitting to the call of God to be set apart for a special service or work for the Lord. Specific periods of consecration, fasting, repentance, and infilling of the Holy Spirit can be key parts of the overall sanctification process of a believer's life. So consecration is taking an intense time of being set apart for God's purposes. That's what we're going up there to do. We're going up there to be set apart for service to God.